Morning, Illuminate. So good to be with you guys. How many of you guys just are praising God for some clouds? It's a native thing. Right now, people from Seattle are like, wait, what? Just to be clear, I get charismatic when it rains around here, okay? I mean, please, you know, that's what it means to be a native. Like Hudson said, if you're here for the first time, great to have you. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to have the opportunity to do that. I'll be hanging out right down here right after uh, the service today. Uh, A couple of quick things to bring your attention to, if you can help us out. By God's grace, kind of fun this summer, he has been adding to our numbers. I don't know if you've been able to tell, but even through the summer, second service is feeling a little a little tight, right? And this is in the summertime. Typically what happens is, you know, churches take a little bit of a dip in the summer, but that hasn't happened to us. And so what I'm going to ask, if it's possible, prayerfully consider making the shift from second service to the first service. (gasps) Just asking, I'm just asking, just pray about it. The donuts are a little fresher. The coffee's a little warmer. Here's what we know. Uh, our visitors tend to come second hour and we want to be able to make space for them. So best case scenario is that you invite your friends, family, right? People in your sphere of influence to attend whatever service is most convenient. But what we know is that come the fall, we're anticipating uh, people coming back and an increase, especially during the second service. So if you're able to make a switch to the first service, we would really, really appreciate it. And um, it's uh, God's will. So second thing is this. Our friends at the Center for Arizona Policy have recently released their 2022 uh, voter guide. And let me explain what this is. Essentially what they do is they send a survey out to all of the candidates asking several different questions on a lot of very relevant topics. And candidates can decide whether or not they want to reply to the questions and then Uh, They are compiled into a document that you can get at azpolicy.org. Now, why is this important? I'll explain why. You need to vote. As a Christian, you need to vote. Here's why. In Jeremiah chapter 29, the prophet tells the people of God, seek the welfare of your city. In other words, what he's saying is do good. Do good for your city. Secondly, he says, pray for your city. Now, one of the ways that we can bring about the good for our city is by using our vote to support those candidates that best align themselves with biblical principles. Because when biblical principles are enacted locally and statewide, even on a federal level, that is the good. That's what brings about the good for our city and society in general. That's why it's important. Now you might be saying, well, that was back then and, and this is a different time and, and, and they lived under a sort of a, a different rule of law than we do today and, and, and they don't understand what it's like. You know, in our time, it's a little bit more fluid and flexible and things are a little bit more gray. It was spoken to God's people when they were taken exile in Babylon. You understand? You read the book of Revelation, and what you learn is that Babylon actually becomes a representative of the world's system. So they understood what it meant to live in a culture that didn't necessarily embrace the things of God, certainly didn't have a biblical perspective, and they're told, do good. Because when the people in the city prospers, you will prosper as well. 
So that's important. azpolicy.org, you can check out. They also have local voter guides depending on who is in your specific district. Now, Genesis chapter 28. So we're gonna pick up where we left off last week. It's the story of two brothers and <laughs> they're not good together. We've talked about how very often under one roof there can be extreme family dysfunction and so we see it play itself out. One brother, the older brother, actually they're twins, the older one Esau, he's impetuous and impulsive. The younger brother is conniving. He's a manipulator. That's a bad combination under one roof. And so what happens is the younger Jacob ends up deceiving Isaac, their father, tricks him into giving a blessing, which Jacob received. It was meant for the older one, Esau. Dad won't take back the blessing that's given. Esau's left in the cold and he's upset. He's so angry, and anger is a very powerful motivator. Mom finds out what's happened with, in Esau's mind and heart, tells the younger Jacob, you better get out of town because your brother Esau consoles himself with the thought of killing you. So here's what you need to do, boy. Go find yourself a wife. Go to your uncle's household and land several hundred miles away. Leave everything behind. Find a good wife for yourself there. Don't do like your older brother did and marry women who worship foreign gods because literally mom says, they're a nuisance to me. It's kind of that classic mother-in-law, daughter-in-law conflict playing itself out. Don't do that. Do this. So marry a good woman. And his life, his family, everything is shattered as a result of taking things, we see it once again in this chapter, into his own hands, forcing the situation, living up to his name, which literally means heel grabber, deceit. And it's not exactly what he thought it would be. He's forced to leave his home. In fact, he won't see his mom and dad again. He travels, sets out on this journey between 450 and 500 miles away. Somewhere along the way, lays his head on a rock and he begins to dream. And it's at this moment, this low point in his life that God says, I am here. God says, I am not only here, but I am real. And I want to do something in your life. Now that you have come to the end of yourself, you're in the bottom of the pit, you have nowhere to look but up, and God says, I'm here. By the way, this is the story that many of us have in life. We come to a, a point of complete bankruptcy. The Bible is true in every way. It's really sobering the way in which it's written because it says things like, don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. So some of us have spent some good time sowing all the wrong things. And it's just a matter of time that those things 
produced fruit, which we have reaped in our lives. And it was a predictable trajectory, but early on, especially when you're younger, you're like, no, 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 I'm gonna gonna be true to myself. I'm gonna live my own truth. I don't really care about what God has to say about truth. I'm just gonna do things my own way. So when you're young, you you engage in a pattern of behavior and you you realize you might be causing harm to others. Maybe it's a little destructive to yourself, but you're like, it's cool, I'm young, I can handle it. And then what happens is the years begin to roll on and you find yourself going, this isn't what I wanted in life. Very often, this is what leads a, a, a man or a woman into a midlife crisis because all that you've been sowing, you begin to reap and you feel, you feel lost and you feel empty. And this is exactly where Jacob is at. Family shattered, poor decisions. It catches up with him. Things haven't gone according to plan. Lays his head on this rock and God speaks. Verse 10, Genesis 28, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran and he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he puts it under his head and he lays down. The guy doesn't have anything. He's homeless, doesn't have a pillow. He begins to sleep. And then he dreams, and this is what he sees. Behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. The top of it reaches up into heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Here's what we know. Angels were created by God to do his work. Hebrews chapter 1 they're referred to as ministering spirits. That's why whenever you read about them in the Bible, you see them doing God's work. So there's this ladder. Angels are ascending and descending upon it. Ladders from heaven to earth. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. Okay, uh, this is the polytheistic world, culture, and society. We need some clarification here. Which God is this? The God of Abraham, your father, more specifically, your grandfather. I spoke to him. It's the God of Isaac. That's your dad. And here's what I have to say to you. The land on which you lie, I'm going to give to you and your descendants. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, meaning you're going to have a lot of them. And you shall spread abroad to the west, the east, the north, and the south. And in you and your offspring, all of the families on the earth are going to be blessed. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So picture the scene. Jacob has nothing. He's at the end of his his rope, his will, and he's got his head on a rock, falls asleep, and he gets this vision. And it's a ladder, but more more specifically, more literally, the word for ladder is stairway. This is a stairway to and from heaven. And angels are going up and down this stairway, which is a crazy sight. But what's even more fantastic is that at the top, there's God. 
And even more so, God begins to speak, and he speaks specifically to Jacob. And he says, here's what I'm going to do for you. The land that you're on, I'm going to give to you. You're going to have more descendants than you can imagine. And through you, that is to say, through one of your offspring, a blessing will come to every family on the planet. Now, these things should sound familiar because these are the same promises that God made to his grandfather Abraham, then to his dad Isaac, now being passed on to Jacob. In other words, Jacob will become the third great patriarch. Previously, God was referred to as the God of Abraham and Isaac, but now what we'll read moving forward is this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is no small thing. Uh, this is incredible comfort coming to a man that is absolutely undeserving. You know, God's grace, which is his unmerited favor, it shows up in the strangest and most unexpected places. The guy's name literally means deceiver. How'd you like that as a name? You introduce yourself. Hey, what's your name? My name's Jason. My name in Greek means healer. That's nice. That sounds good. What's your name? Jacob, deceiver. That's me. And he's been true to his name. And God says, I'm gonna meet you right where you're at in the midst of all your failures, your mistakes. And I'm gonna show you my grace. You've heard me say many times, there is no one who is too far removed from the outstretched arm of God. All the great heroes of the faith, liars, cheats, adulterers, murderers, Moses, David, imperfect people encountering a perfect God who is full of grace. And this is exactly what this man needs. Now, the message of the latter is essentially, I am with you, Jacob. So much so that the promises I made to your ancestors are now being fulfilled in you. I am with you. By the way, this is true of believers today. If you have embraced Jesus as your savior, meaning that you recognize that you've done things that have alienated yourself from God and others, by the way, this is what the Bible refers to as sin. If you recognize that, and by the way, one of the most easily verifiable truths of the Bible is that men and women sin, okay? Let's, that's why the world is so jacked up. That's a problem because God is holy, which means he's perfectly pure. And a holy God is also just. He can't turn a blind eye to all the wrongs that are done. Your wrongs have to be dealt with. In the same way that when you see somebody mistreat another person and wrong someone, you're like, justice, bring justice. But then when you do wrong, what do you scream? Mercy. See, on the cross, the justice of God, the mercy of God meet each other. How beautiful is that? Oh, how good is that? So if you've embraced what Jesus has done for you on the cross, the wages of sin is death. God looks at you through the lenses of his son, forgiven. That's big. You give Jesus your junk, he gives you eternal life, forgiveness in return. Good deal for you. More to that in, in a second. Um, but this really is a testimony to God's grace in this man's life. The most famous hymn ever written. Anybody have a clue what that might be? I know different people like different hymns. And 
What do you think? Amazing Grace. Written in 1779. People are still singing it today. Why? Because of the depths of the words, everybody. Here's a taste. John Newton wrote it. Through many dangers, toil, and snares, I have already come. In other words, what he's saying is, you know, life isn't easy. And sometimes as a result of my own misguided decisions, I actually make it harder. But it's grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace is going to lead me home. This is so true of this church. It is by God's grace that Illuminate is here today. It is by God's grace that we will be here tomorrow. And it is by God's grace alone that he will usher us into eternity. It's all a matter of God's grace and nothing we could do to earn it on our own. That's how good God is. So you know what this means? Everybody just, you know, just take a deep breath because the pressure's off. See, this is the difference between religion and faith in Jesus. Religion has you doing. Jesus on the cross uttered what? It is done. It is finished. The work is finished. I did it now. Trust me. Trust me. Trust in my work. So Jacob is in process. Um, remember, his name is, means one who deceives. Previously, he referred to God as his father's God, but it was never my God, but now it changes because of this personal encounter. He knew about God. He'd heard the stories of God speaking to grandpa and to dad. Now he's personalizing it. By the way, if you have kids and you're raising them in a Christian home, just know that kids must make the decision for themselves. As a parent, you can do everything, everything in your power. Pray, set them on the right path, but at the end of the day, they will make the decision for themselves. Everybody is responsible for his or her decision to either accept the grace of God or to reject it. So this encounter changes things for Jacob. He responds, verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Definitely, God is in this place. But I didn't recognize it. I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than Bethel, the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set up a, 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 for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He, he's just, he's making this place. It's like, pile up the stones, Remember what God did here because when you pass through the land again, you're going to see it and you're going to be like, oh yeah, remember when God met me in this place? I don't want to forget that. That's why it's important when God does things in your life, pile some stones up. You know what I'm saying? Don't forget what God has done in your life. And he called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at the first, in case you wanted to know. Let me comment on that for a second. Sometimes you read through the Bible and you're like, you, you, you get these details that have nothing to do with advancing the plot. You ever notice that? And you're like, okay, why? Like it'll mention a specific town, it'll mention a distance, you know, specific distance, just these random details. You know why that is? Because the Bible is not written in the style of fiction. If you write in the style of fiction back in the day, you don't include these meaningless details but it's written in the style of nonfiction that supports historical accuracy. So what they're saying is, oh, hey, by the way, um, just in case you're wondering, you're trying to put this together on, on the little map. 
So Bethel, it's in the vicinity where, where you know Luz, the ancient city of Luz. Well, that's what it was at first. Okay, that's where you So it does nothing to advance the plot, but it's actually more important than you think because it, it tells you this is not... People think the Bible is myth and fable. It is not written in that style. Can we just put that to rest, please? Okay? It's not written in that style. It's written in the style of historical, factual, evidence-based literature. All right? Uh, so... He goes on, he says, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, because like right now I have nothing, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give, I will give a full tenth to you. So here's what he's saying. It's as if he's saying, okay, look, here's the deal. Um, God, if you do this, then I will do this for you. Is that really what is, what's going on here? It's, it's like that's transactional in relationship. That's, that's not really what's happening here. Jacob assumes God is going to do these things. So it's more of a since than an if. Since God is going to provide these things for me, hey, what does that mean for me? Wow, I mean, that's the kindness of God toward my life. I've experienced that kindness in my lowly state, so that motivates me now to want to surrender myself to God voluntarily, not because I'm being forced to. And, and the proof of that, he says, I'll give you a tenth of all that I have. So this guy is tithing off the gross, everybody. It's been said that the last thing to be converted in your life is your bank account. The last thing to be converted in our lives is our bank account. Jesus talked a lot about money. We are the rich. If you have food in the fridge, if you have gas in your car, um, if you're not wondering where your next meal comes from, you know, most of humanity lives on roughly, excuse me, a little over half of humanity lives on roughly two to three dollars a day. So we are the rich. So why does Jesus talk so much about money? Because, you know, he's like one of those preachers you see on TV who's always in it for, Jesus doesn't need your money. He owns everything, okay? God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. If he wants to sell some, he'll do it. He doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. But the surest path to your heart probably gonna be through your money because we spend our money on what's important to us. So really it isn't about the money, it's about the heart. That's why Jesus says, be generous. Because when you're generous, you know what's happening? You're loosening your grip and the human desire for greed on the stuff you have because you know, you really in reality, brothers and sisters, we don't possess anything. We steward everything. See the difference? That's what keeps you content, by the way. Generosity is the cure for your greed. Okay, so. Uh, he says, I'll give you a tenth of all that, that I have. So he continues on this journey toward his uncle's home. Um, and let me just condense what happens next. God keeps his promise. Because here's what we know looking back on history, human history. So this guy Jacob's really interesting, as we're going to see this in a couple of weeks. God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. Israel means one who wrestles with God. And there is this, there, there's this little UFC smackdown. There's this little, little, little WWE event between 
God and Jacob. And, and some people think it's the touching of, of the socket, right, that is dislocated during this wrestling match. It's not, as we'll get this, it's kind of fun. It's literally, it's, it's, a, it's a punch to the groin. Because the groin represented your descendants. <laughs> There's more there than you think. It's going to be super fun when we get to that chapter. So his name gets changed to Israel, and he will have 12 boys. And each one of these boys will become a leader. Each one will be the progenitor of a tribe. This is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. And then what's really, really fascinating is that what God implemented in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed, they fell, sin entered the world. God was like, I gotta make a plan to bring people back to me. And it's gonna involve something that's gonna blow everybody's mind. I'm gonna send a hero. And that hero is going to arrive, not with a blazing S on the chest and a cape, but this hero is going to, I'm going to flip the script. This hero is going to arrive in a lowly stable, manger, amongst commoners and poor people. And through this child, every family on earth will be blessed. Well, guess what? Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. That's why the New Testament writers, Matthew and Luke, begin by saying, y'all know your Old Testament, right? Good God-fearing Jews, and you know the prophecies about a forthcoming Messiah. And what's at the top of that list? Got to be a descendant of the patriarchs. Well, guess what? That's Jesus. That's how they start. What's more is that Jesus, when he describes himself to others, he uses the language of Genesis chapter 28, but in the coolest way. That's what makes this sermon so easy. Jesus actually preached it. So let me preach it in the way Jesus preached it. So what happens in John chapter one, by the way, in John, what you have is a firsthand eyewitness biographical account of the life of Jesus. So people have asked me, well, what's the difference between like our Bibles and you know, our Catholic friends and their Bible? Cause they got a bunch of extra books, right? So in a nutshell, we have a very strict test, very high. The bar is very high in terms of what we include here in, in, in our sacred text. One of those texts has to do with the time or the date in which the text was written. So having that bar set high means we're going to look for those ancient manuscripts that are closest to the time of Jesus, to the time in which he lived. That's why what you have in your New Testament are first-hand eyewitness accounts to the life of Jesus. Not something that was written 250, 300, 350, 400 years later. That's a long time after the life of Jesus. What we want are those eyewitness accounts. So John is one of those guys. And John, I think it's probably safe to say, was Jesus' best friend. And we know that because when Jesus was dying on the cross, he's like, I'm gonna be gone. I've been taking care of mom. And so in my physical absence, what am I gonna do? I'm going to look to my man, John. That's why he says, John, take care of mom. So the guy that you look to to take care of your mom, that's your guy. That's your man, right? That's your dude, right? So that's John in Jesus' life. So John begins to write. He's like, I got to write about my experience living with this guy, Jesus, man. And here's, here, here, there was this encounter that Jesus had with this guy named Nathaniel. In fact, he, he writes this in the first chapter. 
And what's cool about this is John says, let's let Jesus speak for himself. When I was studying in Cambridge, I went away just, just to do some thinking and planning and praying about the next series I want to do. And I think I want to do something like, let Jesus speak for himself. Let's just do the red letters of Jesus. Let's just let Jesus speak for himself. And everybody in the world will be blown away when they just listen to Jesus explain who he is, okay? So this is what he says, right? So there's this encounter between Jesus and this guy named uh, Nathaniel. And here's how it goes down. John chapter 1, verse 47. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he, said, and he says of, of Nathanael, he's like, hey, behold, here's an Israelite. In other words, here's a descendant of Jacob. And, and this guy's righteous, man. And there's no deceit, which is kind of a play on words here, because what does Jacob's name mean? Deceiver. Verse 48, so Nathanael's like kind of blown away, like, okay, there's something supernatural about this guy because he knows me. I don't know him. How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Fig trees are a really interesting study in, in the New Testament. Uh, a lot goes on with that, but verse 49. So Nathanael answered him, Rabbi immediately, immediately says, respect. Rabbi means teacher. He's got his attention. You are the son of God. Clearly you come from God. Heard a lot of things about you. Got a big old entourage rolling into Jerusalem in a few weeks, you know, and in a few years when he starts to announce his kingdom publicly. A lot of people know about Jesus. You are the king of Israel. You're the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies. Clearly, Jesus answered him. So because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, that's what causes you to believe that, that I'm the Messiah, that, that I'm the king of Israel, that I'm the son of God. That's what causes you to believe? He says, let me drop something a little more fantastic on you, okay? How about this, Nathaniel? You're going to see something greater than that. Truly, truly, Jesus says to him. Now, when, when the word truly is repeated twice, you may already know this, it's a way of really grabbing the person's attention. It's, it's like, in other words, it would be like as if I said to you right now, hey, everything that I've said to you for the last 25 minutes, of everything I've said to you, pay attention to what I'm about to say to you next, okay? This is the most important thing I could share with you. That's what Jesus is doing when he says truly, truly. So all of a sudden, Nathaniel's like, he's leaning in a little bit more now. I say to you, you will see heaven open and you will see the angels of God ascending and descending. So Nathaniel's like, oh, oh, I know this picture. I know this story. This is the Jacob story. Because Jacob was in this situation where he saw the angels ascending and descending on this ladder. But see, Jesus doesn't say that. He says something else. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on me, on the Son of Man. Jesus used two primary titles to describe himself, Son of God, referring to his deity, Son of Man, referring to his humanity. And even at times, Son of Man, that was a kingly title that also included deity. But this is crazy because essentially what Jesus is saying is, what happened in Genesis chapter 28 really isn't about a stairway that leads up and down to heaven. It's really about me leading up and down to heaven. In other words, that stairway is being replaced by what I'm about to do in my work on the cross. So now it makes perfect sense. Now you understand why Jesus would say things like this. John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, notice the definite article, not indefinite. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And in our modern time, people don't like that because it's exclusive. 
And if there's one cardinal sin in our modern time, it's exclusivity. We want to be inclusive. Well, let me just say that if you tell people that you will be crucified and that you will be buried for three days and come back to life and you do that and you make physical appearances and at one point to more than 500 people at once, it's the reason why Christianity is a thing, okay? It's the reason why it's here. Then I'm sorry, but the microphone is yours. You get the spotlight. All other truth claims, they melt away. And all of the truth claims that people are, are, are living out, I'm very sensitive to this because I lived according to alternative truth claims and various ones that are thrown out by our culture. Uh, in the end, they will be exposed for what they really are. No one comes to the Father except through me. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, and that is your priest. Oh, no, I'm sorry. And that is your pastor. No, that's the man, Jesus Christ. God to Jesus, to everybody else. Paul in Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. He was condemned for us. Oh, but more than that, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God, a place of honor and privilege, who indeed now is interceding for us. What's that mean? That God, God, the plan for Jesus, which he fulfilled, now, Jesus intercedes for us, sitting at the right hand of God. He hears our prayers. He, he does his work on our behalf. Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what is the take home for us in all of this? Well, man, there's a lot here, but I think for some of us, it's just this idea that when Jacob was striving and trying to make things happen for himself, he couldn't hear from God. <laughs> it wasn't until in the bottom of that pit, head on a rock, nothing. God says, I think maybe now you're ready because you've been emptied of yourself. I can begin to fill you with me. But let me show you my kindness. You know, sometimes there are people who are far from God. And as Christians, we often, we have a tendency to pray something like this. God, you know, I just pray that you'd bring that person to their knees and that they would be face down in the mud. How about this prayer? God, will you show them your kindness? Will you bring a believer into his or her life that shows nothing but kindness? I've got some stories to share with you about this in a few weeks. Uh, because this is what God does. The Bible says the kindness of God leads us to repentance, not the anger of God. God is kind. You see, God, God is not who society thinks he is. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And this is exactly what happens in Jacob's life. Undeserving and yet receives the goodness of, of God. So, um, you know, Maybe you're at a place where you're confused, guilty about your past, anxious, uncertain about the future. Maybe you're at a place where God is ready to break through to you. It's, it's sort of that, it's that little knock on the door, it's that little tap on the shoulder, and it's the Spirit of God saying to you, are you ready? Psalm 46 says it's in that, that still, small voice of God that is just like kind of like a whisper. But our society, Satan isn't gonna make most of you Satanists, okay? 
probably not going to happen. He will distract you. He will make you busy with inconsequential things. And you know what happens over time? Days, weeks, months, years go by. And, and here's how you know it happens. You ever try to fill out one of those things on your phone where it asks you for your age? Right? And you know what ends up happening to you as you get older? <laughs> Gotta go back to the 1960s here, folks. I think we landed on the moon. <laughs> And we're all Jacobs. We all spend our time trying to get things our way. We end up with head on the rock going, okay, I think I'm ready. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I just wanna take a minute. Not let this opportunity get by us. I was asked, somebody wrote to me online, why are you always asking people to bow their heads and close their eyes? I'll tell you why. Because this is really important probably the most important time you'll spend all week. In the busyness of life, we don't stop, clear distractions, and say, God, what do you, what do you want to do to me and, and through me? How are you speaking to me? If you're here this morning and you know about God, you don't know God, simple prayer, talking to God, that's simply, hey, I recognize that I'm a sinner separated from you, and I need Jesus in my life. Whole lot of people on this planet have made that confession. And then what happens is you begin to mature. Jacob is immature, he'll grow in maturity, but the way you grow in maturity is by practicing obedience. So what's really cool is we've got some, some students that are amazing because they're actually gonna prove to be an example of what obedience looks like. They are the example, I'm super proud of. Not easy to be up here and share people about finance. Why do you do baptisms this way? Because we want people to be reminded that God is in the business of changing lives. And if he carried a wooden cross up a hill and was nailed to that wooden cross, it's a very small thing for us to stand publicly and say, yeah, I'm, in, I'm down with that. That works for me. And to make that known. So Father, we ask that the good words of your book would just not return void, as you said it wouldn't. I pray that we would be at that place for all of us, myself included, where we're open and receptive to your kindness, your mercy, and your grace as demonstrated in the most powerful way possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray a special blessing over these students as they come and they share their stories. Father, we pray that you would begin to create a new work in their lives that would manifest such great fruit for your kingdom out into the future. Protect them from the powers of darkness that love to rob, steal our joy. All for your glory, we pray. And God's people said, amen.